a group of brilliant, studied aristocrats, noblemen, leaders, governmental leaders, advisors to the king, they show up at Jesus' house. The visit was shocking. The visit came almost two years after Christ's birth. Jesus is working on being a toddler by now. They are foreigners. They're not Jewish. Uh, they're pagan of pagans from the East. Are they remnants of the Medo-Persian Empire, the forerunner to the Iranians? What do you think of the suggestion that uh, three Iranian members of the aristocracy were bowed down to recognize Jesus Christ as king? Wow, that's quite a thought, is it not? Their future heads of state, they come led by God and bow down and give gifts. After Jesus, the most distinguished visitors to this two-bit hamlet of Bethlehem were these guests, the Magi. Their, vis their visit pushes us to ask this morning, have we ever pursued Jesus Christ to know him? One thing you'd have to say about these Magi is they pursued Jesus Christ to know him. Uh, and they pursued him at some great length. <clears throat> this wasn't a small thing. Would we ever find in Jesus that which is so captivating as to give up our treasures in adoring worship because that's what we find in these men. Merry Christmas. I'm so glad you're here this morning to explore these themes together. I wonder in what fresh way God will want to use this familiar story to run after our hearts and our own responsiveness to Jesus Christ. Come with me to Matthew chapter 2. That's where this history is recorded. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew, the second chapter. Matthew's gospel, and each of the gospels have a different purpose. Matthew's gospel is written to Jewish people. It has an interesting beginning. Of course, if you want to appeal to a Jewish crowd, any attachment to Abraham will help you. So in the very second verse of the book, the genealogy starts with Abraham. Of course it does. This is a book <coughs> written to the Jewish people. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And on it goes. Isn't it interesting that the only gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that includes the story of the Magi is in the gospel written to Jewish people. The star of the story are these pagan, Gentile, 
leaders from the east. Yes, one final story from Babylon, Christmas from Babylon this morning. And they come and bow down and recognize Jesus as king. Now this morning I'd like to go two different directions. First, I want to look at the story. Now it's not like we've never heard the story before. Secondly, I want to think about the implications of the story for Christmas. And most specifically about our own heart's responsiveness to Jesus Christ our Lord. Matthew 2, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. Hear the word of the Lord. Now obviously there's more to this story which we will not address this morning. And that is that Herod, uh, coming to understand he'd been outwitted uh, by the Magi uh, sends minions down to Bethlehem, a very small hamlet. It would have been a small community, uh, a two-bit place, not a lot of children under two years old, but even one would be most tragic uh, to have suffered death, and he killed all of the children under two years old, trying to eradicate the threat to his rule as king. We won't be looking specifically at that this morning, but there are three pieces to this history that I want us to lay hold of. A group of Eastern Magi photobombed Joseph and Mary's house in Bethlehem. 
We're not sure who the identity is. Who are these people? We are not actually sure who they are. The text doesn't tell us. Is it leftover remnants from the Persians? Is it leftover remnants of the wise men from the Babylonian Empire? We know that in the ancient Near East at this time, the nadir height of astrology and portent messages, the cyclical appearances of things like Halley's Comet would have um, uh, been seen by some of the ancients as, oh, something's getting ready to happen. The stars are telling us. And so this is at its zenith height and they are, particularly in the east, in fact, there's a remnant of it left over in what, what is, I don't know if I can enunciate the word right, Zoroastroism, uh, a, a remnant of a Persian sect uh, that's tied up with the stars and the starry host. We don't know who they are. Now, some argue this story never happened, uh, that what this story is is a Jewish legend that somehow found its way into the text. But to draw that conclusion is really uh, counterintuitive because one of the issues that the early church fought off was people's interest in astrology and in embracing astrology as a means to find out their future, to find out what was portenting for them and what would happen. And so they begin to fight this off with gospel clarity. And it seems counterintuitive for the early church to um, go ahead and embed a story that's a legend, uh, not true, but we'll, we'll throw it in. That doesn't make any logical sense. What we have here is extraordinary history. But if you say to me, Eric, come on, the, 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 I, I'm not sure how, I, I can't buy this whole line. Oh, I mean, this is not the half of it. I mean, starting with virgin birth, everything about the coming of Jesus is miraculous and extraordinary and could only be a story written by God. Now, there are three pieces of this history. Let's dive into it together. First, God reveals himself to three astronomers from Babylon. They come, chapter 2, verse 1, from the east. Now, keep in mind the pattern that Jesus laid out in Matthew 16. Remember what he told Peter? Peter, who do men say that I am? Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah of God, the Christ of God. And Jesus told him something interesting. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not, here's the verb, revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is how it always comes. God in his mercy discloses himself to us. Eric, what explains these three advisors to the king who search the sky for the messages all the time? What explains their coming? It is God revealing himself to them. The only explanation is supernatural. My father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. 
Jesus explained to Peter how he knew who Jesus was. And so it is with us when we come to know Jesus. It's not a monument to how shrewd we are at guessing and solving the riddle, but how wonderful God is in opening our heart to see in Jesus the Son of the living God who has brought us unto eternal salvation. <coughs> now, Numbers 24, 17 and a rather obscure prophet named Balaam, back in the law of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the New Testament, he looked down the road and anticipated that when Messiah would come, there would be a starry manifestation. Notice he says this, I see him, Numbers 24, 17, but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And so just as um, Psalm 72 read this morning about kings who would come and bow down before the king, Psalm 72, 11. So here you have the fulfillment of both what Balaam anticipated and what the psalmist anticipates as well. Now, we're not told how many came. Of course, we know how many there were. There were three. You don't get three from the text of the New Testament. Now, we, we get that there were three kings, uh, probably from two things. One, the hymn, We Three Kings of Orionar. <laughs> uh, secondly, uh, there's gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it is assumed, well, that must be three. We're not told if this was an armado of ten, if it is, if it is uh, more than two. We don't know. But we just know that they came. By the way, uh, they were not there when the shepherds came to uh, the cave where Jesus is laid in the manger on the night that he was born. They come two years later. I had a friend, and he was a bit of a, um, oh, I guess, uh, an overzealous Pharisee when it came to the chronology of Christmas. Uh, if he came to your house and you had your wise men in your nativity scene, inevitably, during the party, he would take the wise men out of the scene, and he would place them in another part of the house. And they would walk in and say, what, what, hap what happened to our wise men? Well, and he would say, well, they aren't here yet. It's another two years before they get there. <laughs> Uh, it can be a nice party favor if you want to try it out your next year. God reveals himself to these three astronomers from Babylon. Secondly, Herod is threatened by their quest to find the king of the Jews. If you are the king of the Jews and somebody comes in to you and it's, it's, it, it, they're, they're pretty weighty uh, leaders, uh, they come from outside your country, and they came in and said, hey, where is he who is born king of the Jews and you are the king of the Jews? That would send a shiver up your spine. And Herod was troubled. Now that's what the text says, but it's interesting. Out of loyalties to Herod, not only was Herod troubled, but it says all of Jerusalem was troubled. <clears throat> when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, there was a particular reason why Herod was troubled. Now, Herod was, and it's a 
$6 fancy term, an Idumean, or Herod was an Edomite. And say, Erica, that, that means nothing. Well, Herod was of the lineage of Esau. And the promise of God coming through Abraham to Isaac, remember Jacob and Esau, the line came through Jacob for Messiah King. It didn't come through Esau. So here you have one of Esau's descendants who way back in the back of his mind knows that there's a part of me that's not legitimately seated here. And then somebody shows up and says, hey, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, Herod, like other leaders in the ancient Near East, was an egomaniac. So this was very much a threat to him. And so, in one of the most disingenuous things said in the New Testament, he calls them together and says, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, chapter 2 and verse 8, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. By the way, it is not possible at the self-same time to worship yourself and to worship the Savior. And he loved himself, and he was trying to protect himself. He wasn't interested in worship, but he did want to find out how to resolve this threat to his kingdom. And so he thought he did. By the way, isn't it fascinating that God's always way, way out ahead? Maybe you're facing something hard this morning. How on earth did the indigent parents marry the mother, Joseph, the husband of Mary? How could the indigent, who when it came time for the sacrifice, uh, gave two turtle doves because that was the sacrifice at circumcision for the poorest of the poor. They had no money. How do they sponsor a several-year jaunt down to Egypt? Well, how about a, a prepaid credit card given and set down with gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And it funded the trip. And they got it before they ever knew they needed it. Isn't that fascinating? I love the genius of God to always be way ahead. Now, we know that he felt threatened, Herod did, because he kills the babies. That's in chapter 2, verses 16, 17, and 18. Now, the third piece of this story, then, is simply this. The star reappeared, and they came to the house, and they saw Jesus. Eric explained this. I can't. I can't. Now, I've been in parts of the earth that show the starry heavens in better parts than other parts. Um, but... I, I've never gotten the impression from even the brightest constellation that I could vector off of it and get any directions. And, and um, you know, but I, my, my astronomy's bad, you know, Big Dipper, Little Dipper. After that, I'm kind of in the weeds, you know, I can't find anything. Uh, but um, um, the only explanation for this story is God's supernatural hands over everything. This is reminiscent of the people of God wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. At night, they're given direction by a pillar of fire provided by God. During the day, a cloud of his presence would move, and they, know, they knew that that was the time to move. Now, it was apparently very evident to them because in verse 9 it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So they've recognized the star in the east. They've come. But now the star reappears as if they are now more clear than they were when they went to Herod. And somehow it directs them miraculously by the living God. They are brought to the house. That must have been quite a knock on the door. Now, remember, they came for one purpose. This was not a vacation. This was not a sightseeing tour. They didn't go to take selfies or uh, publish really cool stuff on TikTok and Instagram. They came for one purpose. And there's a word here that shows up three times that really defines and it, 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 it pulsates through the passage. And it's the word worship. That's why they came. They came to worship. They came to bow down. And when they got to Jesus, they teach us what kind of a response to Jesus is right. They bow down and they give up their treasures. Is our response to Jesus anything like theirs? They may have hummed all the way from Babylon. Oh, come, let us adore him. Because that's exactly what they did. Their yearning for worship was what drove them. By the way, what drives you? What drives me? What drives us at this Christmas? Now that's the story. We know the story. What do these visitors from the east teach us about responding to Jesus? If we let them, these magi will ride camels into our own hearts and show us the kind of response we've had heretofore to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's think in three different directions as these wise men probe our hearts. First, everyone has a response to Jesus. One of the things that this passage teaches us is that everybody responds to Jesus. Now, you may say to me, Eric, look, I don't believe that. I just don't have a response to Jesus. I don't pay attention to Jesus. I, I, no, you need to understand that that is a response to Jesus. So one of the things that passage asks us, of course, is what is our response? Everyone has a response to Jesus. The wise men, what's their response? Their hearts are full of thrill as God discloses to them. The coming king. They go a long way in a long journey. Herod has a response to Jesus. He wants to resolve the problem of Jesus once for all by killing him. By the way, isn't it true that that never works? Here we are 2,000 years hence in this global movement of Christianity. Even killing Jesus didn't snuff out the message of life and hope and vitality and forgiveness that he came to bring. The people with the chief priests and the scribes have a response. First, there's Herod. He's living for himself, looking out for number one, trying to preserve himself. 
He feigns a disingenuous response. By the way, history is littered with disingenuous responses to Jesus. Yeah, you find him and I'll worship. But then it's the people, the people who had grown accustomed, they're just simply labeled in verse 3, all, all of the people were troubled. The status quo was being disturbed by the coming of Jesus. They liked the status quo. They liked how it was. They didn't want the living God to reveal the true nature of our own heart, what we are really like and what we really need just going along thinking the illusion that we're way okay with God and ourselves and we don't need anything that seemed to feel a little bit better then you have religious people they knew stuff if you ask them bible questions they knew you say hey where's Jesus going to be born it's I'll tell you what Micah 5 2 says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Here you have some 600 years before Jesus is born, the prophet saying, the Messiah, when he comes, will come to Bethlehem. The religious people knew that. By the way, isn't it true, and please get the point, that being religious is not it. They even knew some religious factoids. If you ask them, hey, where's Jesus going to be born? I'll tell you what, Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, you can know that. But since they knew that, why on earth are they not scouring the earth in Bethlehem at this time, especially with these new visitors, to try to discern, hey, what in the world is going on? Could it be that God has entered history in Jesus Christ and he has come to save? Don't mistake being religious for responding to Jesus. And I love you being here. There's a wonderful group of people here this morning. But if this story tells us anything, it's like we don't get half credit for coming on Christmas Eve worship. And I'm very grateful that you are here. We have no credit to offer our Lord. But what we do is we bow down and we offer up the treasure of our lives that he has given us. The Magi, Warren Wiersbe said, the Magi were seeking the king and the Jewish priests were ignoring the king. God wants a responsive heart, not a religious heart. Responsive to Jesus. The Magi took what God had revealed to them and sought the Lord and found Jesus Christ. What is your response to Jesus? By the way, don't count anyone out. I know we're into fan duel betting and, and, and everything and every other commercial now is, is on betting. Uh, if we were betting, I don't know, anything about betting, but if we, we were betting, nobody would have put money on these three aristocrats from Babylon who were going to be found laying prostrate before Jesus in worship 
and giving up the things that they treasured most. Nobody would have bet on that. Don't count anybody out. One of the glories of the work of Christ is that he pursues us. And God is pursuing you this morning. Oh, you say, Eric, I have people in my family. I love them so much. And, and they don't seem too interested in Jesus. And I just, I, I, I want you to know that um, you keep pursuing Christ yourself. You keep asking for God to reveal himself to them because you were just like them, inattentive. And so were the Magi until the star appeared and the lights came on and they came to Jesus. <clears throat> the second different direction that this story probes our heart is that worship and joy are at the heart of a right response to Jesus. Again, the word worship shows up three times. Where, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, it come, shows up in a disingenuous sense, but Herod got, he was in the right category. Hey, you bring me word about where he is that I too may come and worship him. <clears throat> verse 8. Then in verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This has been their objective all along, to worship him, to recognize him, to ascribe worth to him. Notice how the words are piled up. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's not they were joyful. It's not that they, they had great joy. It's not that they were exceedingly great in their joy, but they rejoiced, and here's the nature of that joy. It's exceedingly with great joy. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. What an occasion for high joy. One telling metric of our response to Jesus is our emotional response to Christmas. Joy to the world. This is now good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Are you joyful to be here this morning? I'm joyful that you're here. I'm joyful that Christ is here and has come. Because of who he is, worship and joy go together. Indeed, the report of Jesus' coming is one of tidings of comfort and joy, finally. <clears throat> Sacrifice frames the joyful privilege of responding to Jesus Christ. Sacrifice, verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Someone has said, and it's my favorite definition of worship, worship is all that I am responding to all that he is. Their worship included sacrifice. They offered their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, in the ancient Near East, the only people that had access to gold and frankincense were in the king's court. So this is aristocracy. This is the elite class of leaders. 
Myrrh was a little bit more common. But let it be said that nothing for them was too much for Jesus. How about you? Worship out of tribute to a deserving Savior includes sacrifice. May I say what is true in saying that the gifts of God's people here at Calvary Baptist Church in honor of Jesus and out of love for him keeps this place going. You know we don't make too big of a deal out of an offering here. We use offering boxes and often mention nothing. Oh, come, let us adore him. The faithfulness of God's people here has sustained us time and again through the years. You know, David said once in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That's a page out of the playbook of the Magi who found high joy not in hoarding their treasure, but in yielding their treasure to the Lord. Let me just for a moment speak. To, there's a bunch of visitors here. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you for coming. Let me speak just to those who are normally and usually a part of our church family are committed to help us going forward in mission with your support. You know, at the end of January, you get a letter from us. It'll just as long as the IRS does what the IRS does in tax returns and gives a charitable deduction at some level, <clears throat> you'll get a letter from us that will describe how much uh, you gave to this ministry in the last year. What will our 23 giving statements say about our devotion to Christ? Oh, come, let us adore him. Yes or no? How much of adoring is going on? Now again, as I've said, the big term in the passage is the term worship. 2.2, 2.8, and 2.11. It's prostrate before Jesus. It must have seemed like an odd picture to this young lady. She might have only been 16 years old. Bowing before her as she held the child or had the child near is Eastern royalty. But they had it right all along. It's the same pattern as always. God reveals himself to them. They were awakened to see him. They delighted in God's pursuit of them. They came to bow down. Is this us? Have you come to adore him? Is God using Christmas this year to awaken us from our trivial pursuits and bring us to come and bow down to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and allegiance and love and worship? Indeed, O oh come, let us adore him. Wise men and wise women still find their chief joy in life to come and adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. He is Christ the Lord. Oh, Father, you know every heart here this morning. You know those 
who are pleased to be at some kind of a Christmas thing. Maybe it's never dawned on them how deeply interested you are personally in their lives. I pray that you would raise that star up in their heart this morning. Father, I pray for those who are troubled, who when we sing of peace and talk about exceeding joy, they'd love to experience that. That's far away from where they are. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see those possibilities in coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Lord, there's a glory and a mystery to Christmas. It's a story that only a supernatural God could write. And you wrote us into your story by your grace and invite us to you in the person of your son, Jesus. May the Spirit of God reveal to us where we are and where we need to be and summon us, Lord, to bow down and worship you, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.